Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. It's August 20th, and as the COVID-19 summer enters its final phase, Americans are making the most of the time they can spend outdoors and preparing for an uncertain fall. College and K-12 students are, in some parts of the country, returning to in-person learning, while others are continuing with the distance learning that began in the spring. The surge of coronavirus infections that the country has seen for much of the summer appears to be slowing, but who knows for how long. The uncertain state of the pandemic in the U.S. and the rest of the world is what we'll be discussing on this episode of the Ostrom Update, along with the situation in U.S. schools and colleges as the school year begins. We'll also dive into Dr. Ostrom's concerns about what he calls message chaos. But first, as always, we'll start with the dedication. Mike, who gets the honors this week? Well, first of all, thanks, Chris. Uh, it's good to be with you again. And I just want to thank everyone who uh, participated in the live event last week. To say that it was a little uh, nerve-wracking, it was. It's funny. You know, as much live media as I do, you'd think it would have been uh, uh, just another day in the life of. But uh, in fact, it was actually a little bit uh, challenging uh, with all of you out there uh, listening uh, to make sure that I didn't, as they would say affectionately back home, wix my merds. Uh, or, you know, I couldn't say take two uh, with you all. So anyway, um, thank you so very much for being on with us and for listening to this podcast, as I will say every week and each week, it's just as sincere as the week before. Thank you for being with us. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, our SIDRAP team that puts us together uh, really feels all of you and your uh, support for us. It means a great deal. So thank you. In terms of dedication, uh, you know, I I've looked back on all the episodes we've had and the different uh, groups that we've tried to dedicate this to in a in a thoughtful and meaningful way. Um, I, I find myself still coming back time and time again to the sense of uh, the essential workers, the healthcare workers who are on the front lines. And I wish I could dedicate this to them every week and have it be brand new. But so I just want to remind people that that those individuals who are keeping our world moving, who are working to save our lives in our hospitals, thank you. This one I, I want to uh, share. Uh, this came to me via uh, Laura, who sent me a very, very thoughtful email. And, uh, you know, I have in the back of my mind uh, kind of put a, a place in time that I can't wait to get to. Um, you know, as an old English channel swimmer, where you would sometimes swim for 14 to 16 hours, you just had to play a game in your mind to say, okay, I can just go this much further, another two hours, and I'll be here. And, and you just kind of take it in increments. And I have thought all along in this pandemic, I will know that we're in the right place at the right time, when in fact, we can all feel comfortable going back and being entertained by the arts. Um, you know, that is uniquely a human experience. It's something that we all want and need. And uh, I, I, I can't wait for that to happen. So that, to me, is my mile marker that I know that we, we've arrived at where we need to be. And so it's in that regard, uh, Laura, thank you, that I really dedicate this to the live entertainment industry. 
And what I'm talking about here are the many, many people that we've never seen. We don't know their names. We've never uh, understood what they exactly do, but they're the ones that make it possible to be entertained. Live entertainment was the first working community to lose its income, and it's going to likely be the last to be able to get safely back to work. There are millions of them, people who work in concessions, build costumes, mix audio, design lighting and sets, string guitars, they rig trusses, they drive gear around the country, and they handle the cameras to share their world with us. And their jobs disappeared in March, and it's very likely they're going to be gone for quite some time, well into March of 2021, and maybe even likely longer. When these fine, talented, dedicated people are back to work, the world's going to be a lot better place. And so to you, I dedicate it as, as our mile markers in this whole pandemic, and uh, we can't wait to see you, feel you, know you're there even if we don't see you, and to appreciate what you bring to us. So this is dedicated to all the live entertainment industry. As I mentioned in the opening, new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. have been trending downward in recent weeks, but we still have nearly twice the number of new daily cases as we had in June. Mike, are we hitting a new but simply higher plateau? Well, first of all, we have to remember we're on a journey. Somewhere between those very first cases in Wuhan and one day to a dream where a vaccine makes it possible to tell us that we are done with cases. And what we have to understand is that's that's just what we're going to be doing. And so if anything, uh, let me try to share with you today my vision for where we're at on that uh, historic map of COVID-19 and uh, what, what it looks like today and what I think it'll look like in, in the near term. Just from a historic perspective, remember that in early March in the United States, there was a sense, oh, this is not going to be a big deal. A couple of cases, uh, an imported situation here, case here. And then all of a sudden we saw uh, it blow up, literally, like a, a match to a gas can. And by April 10th, we were at 31,709 cases for the seven-day moving average uh, for new cases per day. That's when we hit the height of activity in New York City. And in a sense, we felt like much of the house was on fire. Now, we know back then that, in fact, that wasn't the case, that there were many parts of the United States that would not see a COVID case for weeks and potentially months to come. But that's where the sense was how bad it was. And then with the lockdown, flattening the curve, whatever terminology you want to use, uh, you know, we continued to see behavior change, particularly in the areas that were most uh, adversely impacted, like New York City. And by June 8th, we hit an all-time seven-day low, a seven-day average of 21,484. And we thought that that drop of 10,000 cases was so good that we just decided we were done. And you all know that. You've heard me talk about this on multiple occasions. And uh, that really hit the bottom for us in terms of new cases on a given day. And then uh, that all coincided with post-Memorial Day, uh, the protests. It coincided with uh, the warm weather, people all wanting to get out, go and entertain themselves. Pandemic fatigue had finally taken over. And then between June 8th and July 25th, we watched cases go to a seven-day average for the number of cases per day to 66,781 in this country. 
uh, almost a threefold increase in the number of cases and twice as much as we had seen in April 10th on the previous house on fire. Well, if we look at where we're at today, we can see that we're coming down. Uh, right now, um, the seven-day average for cases is 50,543 cases today. Uh, the average deaths uh, uh, for the seven-day period is 1,061 deaths per day. Um, and it really represents, I think, the beginning of a next stage. I might say we're in another inning, maybe inning five. And what's happening here is, is that I think we're going to hit this new plateau. Uh, I could see it being the high 40s, low 50s. I shared this with you last week and, in fact, the week before. And it seems to be fitting right into place. But what's going to change this is that over the course of the next four to six weeks, with the opening of high schools, the opening of colleges and universities and technical schools, I think we're going to see an explosion of cases. And I know we'll talk more about this in a moment about schools. Uh, in this case, colleges and universities being challenged. This is exactly what's going to happen now in the next phase. And I think we're going to see a sizable increase in cases around the country uh, and a spillover into adults. Um, you know, clearly we're going to see a, another big spike. And, and I just worry that we have become far too accustomed, we've too comfortable. Almost we unfortunately expect what's happening to happen. Remember, remember, please, when we look back on that April date, and we had 31,000 cases of, of COVID-19 reported that day. The house was on fire and we couldn't believe it could get this bad. Wuhan was only 3,000 in some cases. Then we look at June 8th and it came down. And then we hit that 66,000 uh, case number in July. And suddenly April 10th doesn't look so bad. Well, I worry now that we're going to hit a new peak and we're going to look back one day and say, July 25th, ah, that wasn't so bad. And I don't think people yet get that. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, I, I know that this is not a message anyone wants to hear, but it's all about our commitment to making sure that it doesn't happen. But remember, only 8 to 10% of the U.S. population has likely been infected with this virus and will have developed some immunity to it. We've got a long ways to go to get to herd immunity. We're going to talk more about that this afternoon, but I'm going to tell you right now, I still stay with that 50 to 70% number as being the number we have to achieve. So we have a lot of wood for this uh, coronavirus forest fire to burn, and we are the wood. And so this is why I cannot ever stop talking about the need for distancing, for the uh, need for preventing the transmission of this virus. So yes, right now, we're in this uh, flat phase of cases, maybe even going down a little bit. People will probably feel comfortable. Ha ha, it's not, you know, out of control. It is out of control. It is out of control. You don't have this many cases and don't think it's not in control. Uh, right now, uh, the 51 states in the District of Columbia, seven states are seeing ca uh, increases in cases. Uh, that number was at three last week. Uh, we have 24 where it's flat. Last week, that was 26. And we have 20 where cases are decreasing. That number is getting smaller. Uh, so I think over the course of the next few weeks, as we see uh, more and more outbreaks associated with uh, adolescents and young adults in schools, and then the spillover to the rest of the population, we're going to see a, a big increase again in cases. 
Internationally, we're starting to see a real uptick in cases in European countries and other parts of the world after a lull for much of the summer. Now, the pandemic is not out of control in these countries as it is here in the U.S., but what's your takeaway from these trends? And I'm wondering if we're just seeing coronavirus fatigue taking hold in some of these countries. When we were experiencing what we did earlier this summer with the big increase in cases, we watched much of the rest of the world that had also been on fire in March and April and thought, wow, look what they're doing. They're actually improving every day. Their case numbers are dropping. Uh, They're opening up their economies more. Uh, The state of New York was doing the same. And we're all wondering why couldn't we do that? And of course, any listener to these podcasts know that it was pretty straightforward and simple. We gave up on controlling this virus long before it gave up on taking us on. And uh, at that point, this is uh, why we continued to say that uh, what we were doing was not nearly adequate to drive this virus down to a level where it could be better contained. Well, we should have learned the lesson from these other countries in the European Union, uh, in a number of countries in Asia. I fear now we're teaching these countries what we did wrong and they're learning it which is terribly, terribly unfortunate. We're beginning to see the whole issue of what I would call pandemic fatigue hitting these other countries that had driven cases uh, to such a low level. And they're still nowhere close to what's going on in the United States, but it's very concerning. Uh, The European Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Stockholm over the past several weeks has been putting out more and more dire messages about countries that are now being disproportionately affected with big increases, Luxembourg, uh, Belgium, parts of Spain, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Malta, I can go through the list. Uh, Even Germany is now running over a thousand cases a day. And what's happening is it's all part of them moving very quickly from their opening, as it was at the time happening, to now an accelerated one, it's summertime, we're done. We're over with this virus. We seem to have forgotten what was going on. And so in that regard, I worry that uh, they're going to see many of the same things that uh, that we uh, are seeing right now. I was really struck by the fact of this issue this past uh, week when I had the opportunity to appear on Irish Public Radio with uh, one of the local Uh, investigators there, a a very brilliant uh, young investigator. And just looking at Ireland, and I have to compare that because in in many ways it compares back to my home state of Minnesota. Ireland has almost 5 million people. Minnesota has 5.6 million people. Uh, To date, Ireland has only had 27,313 cases. And I say only with pain because amongst those were over 1,700 deaths. But you compare their 27,000 to our 66,000 here in Minnesota. Again, we're both the same size. It gives you a sense of how different things are here than they are there. But what's concerning is over the past several weeks, Ireland has started to see a major increase upwards. And I learned on this uh, radio program that Ireland now is seen in the low 20s in terms of the rate of positivity among those being tested, which is an unfortunate harbinger of things to come. So, so all I can say is, is that, you know, please, everyone understand we're not done with this virus uh, at all. We're not close to being done. 
we've seen other hotspots around uh, Europe that's uh, really a, a, a big challenge. Uh, and I think you're going to continue to see cases rising sharply there. Uh, France right now uh, is, is really a very serious concern. Spain, as I mentioned before, the same way. Um, and so uh, if you look at, just look, take France, for example, uh, they now have reported 3,000 daily cases for almost the past week, which was way beyond what they had previously reported. So I think that it is a challenge there. We already know what's going on in Asia. Uh, I think the situation in New Zealand was one where, uh, you know, just two weeks ago, everyone was celebrating, in a sense, this major accomplishment. And as I've shared with this audience before, New Zealand is one of the most my most favorite places in the whole world. I have such respect for what they do there as a government and the beautiful land that they occupy. Well, right now they have 90 active cases in New Zealand. 69 are related to this recent cluster that they're still trying to investigate how that happened. 20 of them are imported that they caught at the border, that they are still uh, overseeing those cases. And then one who is yet not cl uh, classified, it appears to have been a guard at the hotel where they were keeping uh, incoming individuals who were being screened. But I think the, the point being here is that uh, even a country like New Zealand is going to be challenged. South Korea uh, has just had its third straight day of triple-digit cases, 246 cases today. Um, I, I, I say that with the idea that, my, this is a challenge for them, but, oh, if only we could have just that challenge in this country. There are still orders of magnitude per population based on where we're at. So this is part of what we've talked about for a number of weeks. We are having to learn to live with this virus. And the way we're going to have to live with it is we're going to have to make some sacrifices. Distancing is still really important. We can't just go willy-nilly into the public spaces. I worry a lot about the, the opening of different things. When I saw movie theaters opening this week, 15 cents admission to get people to sit into this room with others, even if they're seated every other seat. That's a challenge to me. Um, and we want so badly to get back to what it once was, but we have to understand we're not in control of that, the viruses. If we can only hold out, if we can only hopefully get those vaccines that would be available to help us uh, get to that herd immunity status from that perspective, not from a disease perspective, that would be a wonderful thing. So I, I am concerned globally. I'm concerned in the United States. And, uh, you know, we know enough right now to help control this. We know enough that we can still live our lives without, you know, having to completely put ourselves into shackles. Uh, but at the same time, it does mean we're going to have to make some sacrifices to save lives and to make it possible for things like trying to, to at least allow our elementary uh, kids to go to school or to make it uh, so that in the long-term care facility, uh, my grandparents, your grandparents have a, a greater chance of not becoming infected over the upcoming months. Two of the items we plan to discuss on this episode were the U.S. school situation and the reaction to the recent op-ed you wrote in The New York Times with Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank President Neil Kashkari. Uh, fortunately, we have a listener email that combines both of those topics, so I'm just going to go with that. Dan writes, I read the New York Times op-ed you co-wrote regarding a six-week lockdown. I've also listened to your podcast in late July regarding reopening schools with the mantra of flexibility. 
I'm wondering if you would advocate delaying school for six weeks as well if we were to lock down and then reopening with a flexible approach. Well, thank you, Dan. And, and thank you to all of you who continue to send in questions. Um, I, I, I want to emphasize and uh, the SIDRAP staff are participating in this uh, podcast uh, here, so uh, they can uh, be my sworn uh, confidants in this issue. But uh, we read all of your emails. We read them all. And I try to respond back to as many as I possibly can. It's getting tough right now, given the number. But please don't stop sending them. And Dan, it's very thoughtful questions like this that are really helpful for us to think about what should we be thinking about. Um, Let me kind of break this into two parts and then bring them back together. Uh, The first thing is on the school issue. Uh, You know, we're going to talk in a moment about college campuses. But, you know, unfortunately, everything's unfolding pretty much as we've said about uh, uh, young adults and adolescents. High schools around the country are experiencing real challenging problems. And I do think that we could uh, have a much better shot at opening these uh, schools uh, before in-campus learning experiences if in fact we weren't seeing the kinds of transmission levels we're seeing. But I don't see us anytime soon decreasing those, those levels. So that's a challenge. I still am hopeful for elementary schools in a number of locations. Um, As I've shared with you in the past, there's something very different about younger kids. Uh, I just keep reminding you that here in Minnesota, we've had our daycare facilities open all summer, um, you know, with local public health, state public health uh, supporting them. Um, We have uh, not had any outbreaks. There have been some introductions of the virus by adults into daycare and uh, we just have not seen the problems, however, emerge. So there's something special there. But when you're talking about adolescents and young adults, that also is a social cultural experience where it's not about the virus. It's not about the, even their physiology of, you know, uh, being an adolescent or young adults. It's their behavior. And, uh, you know, if I could right now, I would invent the most uh, wonderful behavior pill where everybody took it once a day and it basically reduced all their high-risk behavior. And one of the serious side effects of it was they had an incredible outpouring of kindness. Wouldn't that be a great pill? So bottom line is that doesn't exist. So we have to accept the fact that I think we're going to have a real challenge with high schools and colleges, universities ongoing. Uh, I don't see anything changing there in the near term. Now, theoretically, if we could have a quote-unquote lockdown or whatever someone wants to call it in such a way that makes it more palatable, um, I'm convinced that that would have a major impact. And I have to tell you, all the feedback I got since that op-ed piece, which has been substantial, really uh, is divided into two camps. One who understand what we were trying to say and were very, very supportive. And for those of those, thank you. Last thing we want to do is harm anyone any more than this virus is doing, God knows. But there are others of you that saw this as just a further intrusion. We are just going to pile it on. The virus might hit you first if you were worried about it at all, but then we just piled on. Let me just point out that, again, the whole purpose of that op-ed was to lay out a plan that minimized the pain and suffering and economic disruption. You know, the Federal Reserve Bank uh, researchers are among the best in the world, have determined that, in fact, it's going to be this bleeding day after day after day by these increasing numbers that will bring down the economy. And, you know, we actually have data from uh, Europe 
where even though they're having an increase in cases right now, they have still opened up much, much more than us. And if you actually look at a, a graph showing the changes in visits to retail and recreation locations from February to August for the United States, France, Italy, and Germany, you can see we were all at the same in February. And then making that kind of the zero level, you can see over an 80% decrease in, in uh, visits to those locations for both France and Italy, Germany uh, slightly higher. The United States never got down below 40%. Well, we stayed down there and then kind of gradually came up. And guess what happened? Germany, France, and Italy by end of July had come back up and had far surpassed us. They had recovered in a way that we haven't because they did it right. And in fact, in an op-ed piece that John Barry. Uh, a dear friend and author of the Great Influenza book, uh, it has today in the New York Times is very, very important. It uh, addresses the issue of what happened to the European economy and how it's recovered better than we have. Um, they actually looked at unemployment right now. It's at uh, 6.4% in those countries. The United States rate is 10.2%. And in March and April, according to Open Table, the reservation booking company Business and restaurants in Germany in the U.S. were in identical places, down over 90% year over year. So remember, this was in March and April. Since then, they've diverged widely. Data for August 16th, the latest data which is available, shows German restaurants now enjoyed a 9% more business than last year. Let me repeat that, more business than last year before the pandemic, while the United States restaurants are still down 50%. That's what we were talking about, is driving down this virus to the point of where we could control it enough to not only save lives and illnesses, but also to help bring business back. This was not an anti-business op-ed. And I also emphasize that, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank looking at how we've gone from a 2% of our, our income savings to 8%, we could finance uh, supporting all the people who are losing their jobs, small businesses to keep them whole, uh, city and state governments, uh, with just the savings that has occurred uh, since this pandemic began. Uh, we would not ha have any need for foreign dollars. So I just want to come back and say that um, I hope we still consider it. I've watched one more week. New York has been flat. No increase in cases, despite being surrounded by cases, despite the fact people are coming into New York with cases. Uh, the deaths, again, at an all-time low, that to me is remarkable. Now, they're not back to normal. Those of you living in New York know New York City is still not the city it once was. But you know what's really different? I, I, during the time of, of April, I was haunted by the fact every time I talked to somebody from New York, and I had many calls a day with people there, all I ever heard in the background were sirens. Day in and day out, 24-7. You don't hear any sirens here today. And I think that we still have an opportunity to learn this lesson. I won't give up. Um, you know, I maybe that's why I'm an English channel swimmer. You know, there's peace missing up on top. But the bottom line is, is that I still think we have an opportunity here. But it's going to have to be a state-by-state -state issue. I don't believe there will be a national uh, lockdown. There doesn't need to be, frankly. Uh, some states can do it much easier and much better than others. Uh, some localities within states are much uh, further along in doing this. But I think at this point, 
the key message is, is that, you know what, uh, Dan, you're right. If we could do a lockdown for six weeks, I think if we could postpone our schools, we'd have a much, much better chance at actually opening them, having students coming to class, not just dialing in or getting on the internet. And uh, that's my hope. And I'm not going to give up on this. And, and uh, we'll have to see where we go. So moving on now to higher ed, uh, we've already seen one major university this week, uh, University of North Carolina, uh, shift to online learning only a week after its semester began. Mike, is this a sign of things to come on college campuses? Well, for those, uh, again, who have been listeners on this podcast have heard me talking about this for several weeks, I don't want to uh, keep beating it into the ground, but I have been very challenged to understand how we we're going to open colleges and universities uh, without seeing cases. That part, I think, was a given. The question is, can we operate on campus learning when cases are occurring? Uh, and many of them are, uh, are being acquired off campus in social events. Um, you know, the younger generation, there are many wonderful members of that younger generation. There are kids, our grandkids. Um, but they also are a generation right now that to them, this virus only has very limited meaning. And so we have so many stories in the past two weeks of all these parties. And I'm losing track of the number of universities and colleges that opening early have already had major problems. So I don't see uh, for the vast majority of institutions around the country how they're going to stay open. Um, you know, the transmission is going to start to occur in classrooms uh, just because of the fact that they're acquiring it in their evening activities or wherever, uh, and, and they're going to bring it into the classroom. And I think uh, colleges and universities have done everything they possibly can across the board. I, I'm very impressed, including our own university. But uh, I, I would not be honest if I didn't tell you I don't see uh, an easy and a bright light answer here that will make it work. So I suspect within several weeks, maybe longer, most colleges and universities will be doing complete dis uh, distance learning. Um, and uh, I hope that we don't use that as a way to say that, uh, therefore, all education has to be that way. I keep coming back to the elementary schools. Uh, you know, I think there may be that possibility we can do those safely. Um, and, uh, and, and so we'll just have to wait and see. But I'm I'm uh, challenged right now to see how we're going to get out of this uh, without uh, a, um, a problem. Let me just say that, you know, I'm a numerator and a denominator guy. You know, everything's a rate to me as an epidemiologist, but I'm also a father and a grandfather, and that makes me a numerator guy. You know, all it takes is one. And uh, I think we're going to see some very unfortunate situations in colleges, campuses, and high schools where we will have those very rare cases, very rare where someone will get severely ill and potentially die. It could either be a student or a faculty member. And then at that point, it takes on a whole new life of its own. And, um, you know, fingers are pointed, accusations made, et cetera. And none of us want that. You know, let's, let's just try to make this our COVID year, our year where, you know what, we're just going to try to do the best we can to take care of those who are most disadvantaged, those who need the emotional, the mental support, those who need a hot meal, those that need safety. Uh, let's not let them fall through the cracks. And whatever else happens, we're going to consider it our COVID year and we'll make up for it next year. 
Mike, in our weekly meeting that we have with the producers to prepare for the podcast, you mentioned your concerns about what you're calling message chaos and the different messages the public is getting about herd immunity, testing, and other elements of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you break that idea down for our listeners and, and what concerns you about it? Well, I understand the reality of where we are. This is the number one news story of the decade and maybe for many decades to come. And everyone is trying to find their way through this situation from any number of different points of consideration. Uh, The media covers it almost nonstop. Reporters who have never done health reporting before are now doing daily stories about this virus. A lot of implications for businesses, economies, government, uh, leadership, all these things, all the things we talk about routinely. And so everyone has a stake in this situation. This isn't an outbreak of just a small group of people. This is all of us. So I understand the fact that there is a sensational appetite for information. And unfortunately, it is a new virus as far as a coronavirus uh, pandemic is concerned. We are learning a lot. Uh, As I've said to you many times on this broadcast, you know, uh, I know probably less about this virus today than I did five weeks ago, because the more I learn, the less I think I know. Um, And so from that perspective, I can understand the challenges of trying to get information and making sense of it. But something's happened that I find also um, disturbing. And that is, I think we are now living in message chaos. And part of that is the, for that reason, is that everybody seems to want to have a part of this disease situation in which they can be the expert. And, you know, I, I tread very carefully here because I'm sure that many of you could look right at me and say, well, you're right at the top of the list. What are you talking about? You know, the idea that, you know, people uh, are, are trying to espouse facts or figures or conclusions or remedies for this whole thing. But in fact, I think the, the what's happening right now is what was really nicely defined by Nathan Ballantyne in a paper in Mind back in April of 2019 called Epistemic Trespassing. Epistemic trespassers are thinkers who have competence or expertise to make good judgments in one field, but they move to another field where they lack competence, and they pass judgments on the less. We should doubt that trespassers are reliable judges in fields where they're outsiders, as Nathan says. He goes on just to give an example of this, and this was one that um, I personally experienced in the sense of some of our work, uh, and, and I quote, a few examples will guide our discussion. Linus Pauling, the brilliant chemist and energetic proponent of peace, won two Nobel Prizes, one for his work in chemistry and another for his activism against atomic weapons. Later, Pauling asserted that megadoses of vitamin C could effectively treat diseases such as cancer and cure ailments like the common cold. Pauling was roundly dismissed as a crackpot by the medical establishment after researchers ran studies and concluded that high-dose vitamin C therapies did not have the touted health effects. Pauling accused the establishment of fraud and careless science. This trespasser did not want to be moved aside by real experts. And what I'm seeing here right now are people who come from a number of different disciplines of medicine and so forth who are now uh, becoming public health experts uh, with only very limited experience in that area. 
public health experts who are becoming immunologists and experts in areas that they too don't have expertise. And, and I worry about that because I read so many headlines and so many quotes today that I just know from what expertise I have, they just aren't right. And, and that we have an unsophisticated expertise in terms of much of the media to understand that. So while these reporters are trying to do the best job they can, it'd be like me, you know, being asked to come overhaul somebody's car engine this afternoon. I'd have to make sure, you know, I knew how to get the hood open. And, and I think that this is the challenge we're having. So, you know, let me just comment on this one last moment or before I give you some examples. You know, I promise you that we will try to do our very best at SIDRAP, but me specifically, I won't comment on something unless we know what we're talking about. And when I say we know that, we've done the homework, we've spent a lot of time understanding it, we've talked to the other experts, and then I will only only portray what I know as an epidemiologist. That's what I am. You know, I know how to understand about how diseases get transmitted among and by people and how to measure that transmission and what we can do to stop that transmission, how, as we affectionately say, pull the pump handle. If I talk about immunology, I talk about vaccines, I talk about these other things. At best, I'm on the edge of, of, I'm an observer learning from others, but I'm telling you what I've learned, not that I'm that expert. So I worry about that, Chris, in the sense that I think today, um, many in the public see somebody's name from such an institution as a, you know, some prestigious place. Well, they must know what they're talking about. And I'm sitting there going, what are they doing? What do they know? And I've seen this happen over and over again. And, and maybe I can give you some examples. I think that would be very helpful to understand that. Uh, and what I mean by that is examples is just trying to put this message chaos into perspective. You know, right now, uh, let me just take a couple issues. I'll take testing. You know, we have critics today uh, who are out there making very firm comments about how many tests we need each day in this country to successfully contain this pandemic. And, and I, uh, I, I always am struck by how does a test contain a pandemic? I don't know. I don't understand that. Now, it may set off a cascade of events that can help do that, but it by itself doesn't change a pandemic any more than a spoonful of sugar will cure a fatal disease. Uh, may taste good going down, but it doesn't really make a difference in your outcome. So when you look at this idea of the critics, and I've heard several of them on media and papers, et cetera, stories in the past week saying we need 25 million to 30 million tests a week, uh, basically able to test 8 to 9% of the U.S. population. Meanwhile, you have the, uh, the HHS saying, look it, we're doing enough. You know, we have more than enough testing. You can't test your way out of a pandemic. Uh, last week, we tested uh, approximately 5,107,000 individuals in this country. The previous week before that, it was 5,700,000 individuals were tested, far short of the 25 to 30,000 per week. Now, if I'm a citizen out there, I'm wondering, wait a minute, why are we so far off? Who's right? Who's wrong? Let me just take a step back and say that there is no magic number for what we need to do for testing. What we need to do is the smart testing that we talked about in our April 20th document, The Viewpoint, which I'll come back to in just a minute. But to put it in context, to give you an idea of just how this has become ingrained about how testing is going to save us, um, 
it, it is we're going to test our way out of this uh, pandemic. There was an article in the Atlantic Monthly this past week in which testing uh, is is covered and all the issues around it. And one of the uh, statements made in it is a quote from someone. And that quote is, the only thing that makes a difference in the economy is public health. And the only thing that makes a difference in public health is testing. Simon Johnson, the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, told us. Well, I don't understand that. I do not understand that. I am very protesting. But the question is, how is testing going to make a difference? And I think that that's the issue that we have to deal with today. There are those who purport we should test everyone every day. As you know, we don't agree with that position here, not because I don't want people to know whether or not they're infected and with asymptomatic testing, but I come back to this issue with smart testing. It basically means you have the right infrastructure in place. You have what you need for all aspects of reagents, testing equipment, et cetera. And I'll come back to that. You have the right populations. Who should you be testing? If we tested everyone in the United States every day, which is never going to happen, never going to happen, how would that make a difference in terms of what they do or don't do? We need the right test. There are these different kinds of tests. There's molecular test, antigen test, antibody test. I'll come back and cover those a bit more so that you might not be confused by this. You need the right interpretation. You know, how well does this test really work or not? And then you need to have the right action. Based on that test results, what happens? Does this person isolate themselves so that if they're positive, they don't transmit to others? Do they get a negative test for the third time in three weeks and then assume that everything they're doing must be right? So because I've been to the bars at night and I'm still not positive, I must not be at risk. What I, I really want us to get back to is in this smart testing issue and take a look at where we are today with testing and what it means. First of all, understand that there are different kinds of tests that we all uh, are talking about, yet we lump them all together. The first ones are diagnostic tests. Uh, diagnostic tests are largely the RT-PCR tests, the ones where you have the swab uh, in your nasal pharyngeal area and then is tested by this uh, machine that has a high, high degree of of sensitivity and specificity, meaning that when you are positive, you really are positive. When you're negative, you really are negative. Now, that particular test is the one that most people talk about when they're talking about a shortage of tests and how long it come, takes to come back. A test that takes more than 24 to 48 hours to come back is not a test that is worth much because you can't deal with it clinically and you can't really take any public health action to try to follow up, whether it be contact tracing, et cetera. So diagnostic testing is key. So with diagnostic testing, it really should be used on symptomatic or known suspected exposure individuals. Uh, this is where the primary use of PCR testing comes to play. It shouldn't be used for screening just to say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, I'm I'm out here and I just want to know if I should get tested or not. And surely it's not helpful for surveillance, meaning does it give me a sense of who's been previously infected? Now, if you're talking about asymptomatic people without any known exposure or suspected exposure, then it's not, you don't want a diagnostic test. You want a screening test. And a screening test most often are those that would be considered 
kind of the point of care test uh, or the the saliva test, for example, where the sensitivities are much lower, 10% or more lower. At that point, then that test might work there and best used. But again, it doesn't help us with surveillance. Now, if you want to know what's going on in the community, then that's where neither diagnostic or screening tests are helpful. It's all about surveillance testing, and that's antibody. And those tests you can use, even though there's a problem with false positives, because if you keep testing the population enough, you can tell if there are changes occurring. But these are tests you often don't give the results back to the individuals. You just test 300 blood samples to see what's the level of virus activity in this community over the course of X months. You go back in and test three months later. Did it change? Did you see an increase in the number of people who are uh, were likely infected? And so one of the challenges we have today is when people talk about testing, they never differentiate what they're talking about. Are they talking about diagnostic testing to know whether or not I, as a symptomatic individual, really have this infection? These have to be high-sensitivity tests. If I'm screening tests, you know, if I only pick up 70 or 80% of the people, boy, it's better than not at all. So now maybe that's okay for me and I can take action on what I need to do about that. So in terms of testing today, what we want are tests that are smart tests that are here right now that we need. And let me just give you some examples of how you might be confused by mixed messages. This past week, the Food and Drug Administration actually approved the use of a new saliva test. Uh, And it was uh, hailed at the time as a breakthrough and a game changer. This particular test, which comes from Yale University, is one where I, as an individual, will basically, uh, in a sense, it's more than just spit into a little container, but it's one where uh, I have to have someone watch me over a Zoom to make sure that I get the right sample. Then I send it into the lab. Now, what is important about this is that they don't have to do any extraction, meaning that with the swabs that they use, they have to get the genetic material off the swab, which cre- requires a reagent. This basically is directly applied to an RT-PCR test. Um, and so it does cut down on, on, on that particular supply issue. The problem is, as I said earlier, it's up to 10% less sensitive. So if I'm really trying to figure out if somebody has a clinical disease, I'm not going to use this test. I'm going to want to use one of the just regular swabs, RT-PCR testing, and, and do that. And so it's not a game changer or breakthrough that way. Uh, second of all, uh, while it doesn't use all the same reagents that the current uh, PCR testing is using, which sure helps in terms of, of shortage of reagents, it still needs a lot of other lab-required pieces to fit together. It needs vials, it needs uh, pipettes, the things that uh, you, you use to move the sample. Um, it, it, all those are still there. And so it's not as if somehow it's not going to have requirements. And then the other thing is they say, well, the test is only a three-hour analytical test. But that is so misleading because you still have to take the test. You have to then transport it. It has to be logged in at the lab. While the extraction part of the testing is no longer there, that only lowers the cost by a few dollars as it only shortens the time by one to two hours over a regular PCR test. And, And so when you look at this, 
it's not that big of a time saver overall. It makes it seem like it's going to be much shorter. It's still all about how busy is the lab that gets the specimen to begin testing. So if the lab is overrun, it still could take many days to get back. And then it cost, it said it would only cost $10. Well, I have talked to a number of lab directors over the course of the last several days who said, no way am I going to just charge $10 if my other PCR testing is $100 uh, and this is to help me cover my costs. Why would I charge only $10 for this, even though the company said so? And, and so the reason I bring this up is because now I'm already seeing criticism on the media about this test and the very same things I just laid out. And I basically said last week, this is not a game changer or breakthrough. But as a public, you might be confused because all of a sudden you got this idea, wow, there's this brand new super test that's a spit test. All I have to do is spit in a little container and suddenly in no time it's going to be done. It's really a good test. It's helpful. I'm glad we have it. It's one that you can use as a uh, test, a rapid antigen test, but it's not going to be the diagnostic test. It's a screening test. It will help me if I'm well, and I want to know if I potentially have the virus that that's the case. So I, I just use this issue of testing as one right now where there's lots of confusion. Um, we do need better tests. There's another situation that's developed uh, around this, and this idea that what if we use these new dipstick tests? These are ones that actually detect viral antigens on the virus, in this case, the spike protein, uh, the outside of the virus. We don't have to disrupt the virus. And it's been uh, really supported by several individuals, one particular individual from Harvard, who says, boy, if we could get the whole country just to use this every day or several times a week, and we could find that people are infected think what we could do to try to stop this transmission because now they would know. Well, you know, that's great thinking. And unfortunately, and I say this with, with respect because I appreciate the, the intent here, but that's far too much academic thinking, not enough real world thinking. Why is that? Because just think about the following. Who's going to do this? Take a dipstick every morning or every other day. Well, those who are already bubbled who might do it, are the people who already bubbled and don't need to do it. They're the ones that are already doing everything to avoid it. How about young adults? You know, are young adults going to take this and then suddenly change their behavior? Well, right now, they're flying in the face of the most practical advice in the world. If you go due to these parties and you're in those environments, you're putting yourself in harm's way. Why would I then turn around and actually take the dipstick every morning? Well, I might do it because I just want to prove to myself I'm not infected which, you know, after three or four weeks of being at parties and not yet infected, just supports the fact, see, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing right. We saw that with HIV, AIDS, early on with transmission there with people who were in high-risk behavior settings who would go get tested every week just to be sure they weren't positive because it just reinfor reinforced for them what they were doing was okay until they did get positive. So now you got the challenge there of, I don't think this is going to be practical in young adults. Think how many people in this country still believe this whole pandemic's a hoax. Think they're going to every day take a dipstick or twice a week and put it saliva on it to see if they're infected? Well, now I've started to really cut into a large part of the population, the bubbled, the non-compliant, young adults. And then we hit a really horrible interface is with the whole issue of individuals at risk by race, ethnicity. We know that the social class issue, the financial stability, the capability 
of many essential workers and their families, often who are black, brown, indigenous populations, don't have the ability to do anything about if they did find they were positive. There's nothing more tragic than the number of stories that we have heard over and over again. The single mom with two young kids living in a two-bedroom apartment with her mother and father. And her job is so critical to the ability for that family to put food on the table and have a roof over their head. So she goes to work. She gets exposed. She finds out with her dipstick that she's positive. How do I tell her to go isolate? How do I tell her, you know, what you need to do there? You can't. And so part of the challenge has been is to take testing and also use it within the practicality of society as we know it. Meaning that if someone's not going to even believe in the pandemic, do you think you really have a good chance of getting them also to change behavior based on a dipstick use? And so I just worry that we are not bringing coherent messages here. We're not, we're, we're in a battle about how many tests we have, not how well do they work and what do they do. Our whole goal should be reducing transmission. And if we're not doing that because we have bad testing, comes in far too late, we have testing that's not applicable to where they're at in their lives, then we haven't succeeded. So anybody who tells you that testing by itself will break the back of this pandemic are wrong. Now, when Neil and I did our op-ed piece, we did talk about the importance of testing, but that's driving it way down and, and in terms of case numbers. And then when you have a case, doing the kind of testing we talked about uh, for clinically ill individuals and for contacts. And there you have a better chance of having an impact because if somebody is already infected and they have friends who might be infected, they're more likely to participate and cooperate. And so that's the practicality I'm talking about. So I worry about the issue of testing a lot. Another area that we've heard so much about is herd immunity. I've had many questions come in this week about, oh, we're hearing that herd immunity, this concept of how many people have to be infected and be protected before it'll slow virus transmission down. There's an article this week in the New York Times about what if herd immunity is closer than scientists thought. And this, again, is experts talking about areas that they shouldn't be talking about. And what I mean by that is there are some modelers in here who just are not connected with real-world thinking. Um, it, they, they hypothesize that, in fact, uh, the issue of herd immunity could be as low as 20%. Uh, and when you look at their models and how they do it, I have to say it's not only challenging, but it's downright difficult to read. Um, let me just give you the real world view of this and what we're talking about. How many people will it take to get infected uh, depends in part on how many are possibly able to get infected. If you believe that there's a large number already infected, then you're right. Then, you know, we're, we're there. But just think about this. Take some of the experiences we've had recently and you tell me what the level of protection was in this group. Unfortunately, some of the worst and yet most informative situations we've had have been in prisons, where prisoners were really at risk. There was no real uh, effort made or the ability to make an effort to protect these prisoners. Just look at San Quentin State Prison. Right now, um, over two-thirds of that population has been infected. While new cases have slowed down because they're over 66%, but they're still occurring. 60 cases alone reported in the last two weeks. And when you look at that issue, they've already had basically 
767 people dying per 100,000 people. It's been a real severe challenge there. Was there any herd immunity in San Quentin at 20 or 30 percent? No. This is a population that represents, in a sense, who's been out in the public. I could go through other such situations. Uh, you know, correctional facilities in Ohio, number almost 80% of the prisoners eventually were infected. Uh, another uh, California federal prison near Santa Barbara, over 74% of the prisoners eventually got infected. Uh, uh, one dorm at a correctional facility in Louisiana, uh, 192 out of 195 women eventually got were, were infected. You know, that tells you that there was no magic break there. And if there was herd immunity somewhere during the general public out there, it should have been in this population here. And I could go through any number of other experiences. We all recall having talked about the South Korean call center. There was an outbreak in a call center in South Korea where 1,143 people were tested. And there were 97 positives were all. But Of the 97 positives, 94 of the cases all worked in the same work area in the 11th floor call center that had 216 employees. And what happened was when they had the first hit of cases, they saw this, they went in and basically shut it down. So they weren't able to have everyone continue to be exposed. Nonetheless, the attack rate on the 11th floor where it was at was 43.5% in just several weeks. This surely would have continued to go on had they not gone in and shut down the call center and so forth. Again, not evidence of somehow having herd immunity at 20 or 30 percent. We've had a number of church outbreaks where if you look at the number of uh, cases in one outbreak in rural Arkansas, if you look at the attack rates, they were 38 percent for lab confirmed clinical cases, including three deaths. 78% of all the attendees that were there who had asymptomatic infection. Uh, I could go through and keep going and listing all these different outbreaks. So the point I want to make is, is that you're going to read about all these academic types having these arcane debates about is herd immunity not or does it exist and, you know, what it needs. I'll tell you right now it exists at the 50 to 70% level based on the transmission issues we know, and that um, you just have to understand that you're probably going to hear a lot more about this over the future days ahead, and I would just block it out. It's like I said to you last week, be skeptical of everything. Be skeptical of me too. Be skeptical of everything, and this is one for certain that you want to be skeptical about. One last piece that's coming up over and over again is the issue around influenza vaccine and COVID. Um, I have heard from numerous people with numerous emails, and there's things on the internet uh, and even addressed in some of the media that potentially could this year's influenza vaccine put you at greater risk of getting COVID-19 infection. The answer is absolutely no. There is no relationship between the two. We just don't want people to be infected with both viruses at the same time, which will surely potentially make for a much more clinically complicated case. But also, we don't want to take up hospital beds and have people seriously ill and dying from influenza at the same time we're trying to take care of COVID patients. But the bottom line is, get your flu shot. Get it. I wouldn't get it anytime before October if you can, because we do have some evidence of waning immunity after a few months. I get mine typically in early December. 
uh, every year. Uh, this year, maybe it'll help you a little bit earlier, depending on what's going on. But I urge you to get your flu shots. And please don't pay any attention to all that uh, internet chatter out there about flu vaccines are going to put you at a greater risk of having severe COVID. So, Mike, any uh, parting words uh, this week to help uh, cut through all the message chaos for our listeners? I, again, thank you for for being with us and for um, being part of this uh, group. Uh, this has been a remarkable experience. Um, we so much appreciate uh, your feedback. Um, I know it's getting tough I, when I hear from some of you and the challenges you have right now, um, the concerns. Uh, you have parents in long-term care facilities that you're desperately worried about. You have kids going to school. Uh, you have friends and colleagues who don't believe that this is a, a real situation, and therefore the social stress is, is tremendous. Um, you know, we're all going to get through this. We will get through this, and that's what we have to remember. And how we're going to get through it is that kindness that we, we say and that tolerance. And just consider this your COVID year, you know. Uh, if, if, if it doesn't kill you, it's not bad, okay? Just get through and I think that's really an important message is that we just have to have patience. We have to have tolerance. And most of all, we have to have kindness. And it's in that regard that I actually have this week's closing. I want to thank Irene for sending this to me uh, and uh, appreciate all of the poems and songs suggestions you send to me. Irene has shared with me a, a poem from Spike Milligan. Spike was a British-Irish actor, a comedian, a writer, a poet, playwright, well-known in his day. Uh, Spike died in 2002 after a long life. By the way, he was born in 1918 in the heart of the influenza pandemic. And one of the poems he wrote is Smiling is Infectious by Spike Milligan. Smiling is infectious. You catch it like the flu. When someone smiled at me today, I started smiling too. I passed around the corner and saw someone saw my grin. When he smiled, I realized I'd passed it on to him. I thought about that smile. Then I realized its worth. A single smile, just like mine, could travel around the earth. If you feel a smile begin, don't leave it undetected. Let's start an epidemic quick and get the world infected. Can you do better than that? All of you have a great week. Be kind. Be safe. Uh, we're going to have some crazy days ahead, but we're here. We're together, and we will get through this together. And uh, on behalf of all of us at SIDRAP, I can't tell you how much we appreciate uh, you being with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Ostrom Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.com. Edu. The Ostrom Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.